1: Good afternoon, good morning. It's episode 38 of Across the roomverse with myself, Sean, and Steve. And, uh, well, we are going to pretend like the last few weeks have never happened, aren't we, Steve? How, how are you feeling?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's good to be back recording with you. It's a little bit uh, glum that we, we're coming off another dropped result, you know. Um, I was hoping we'd be able to record on a, a higher note than this. But, uh, you know, the international break was a nice, I guess, break from Roma's uh, kind of I guess March soon we can call it. Uh, got to watch Italy win three matches, so that that was at least enjoyable. Uh, yeah. Hopefully things turn around for Roma quickly with Ajax looming on Thursday.
1: Yeah, I even deactivated Twitter because I just I couldn't go with the complaints about Roma every single day. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just a little bit too much for me. So um, let's let's move on to first of all results elsewhere in Rome besides the men's team. The Roma Primavera, their results aren't great either. It's now three draws in a row for the kids on the under 19s. Uh, and that leaves them joint first on the table with Sant Primitvera, Primavera, <clears throat> excuse me, who Romo just drew one all with. Um, but the Gilles Rossini should still be well on course to make the final eight in the playoffs season. So um, really if they make the playoffs, which they will, it's really only thanks to their 2020 form with their blistering opening to this season. Whereas 2021 has been played with Alberto de Rossi complaining about attitude problems on the pitch with players, with the team, with their inability to see out results and their inability to defend as a team. And every time De Rossi gets on the mic to complain, the rumours of his impending retirement always start up once again. That's been going on for about three seasons now, well before the Friedkins or Thiago Pinto came into the scene. So we'll see if De Rossi... Um, this is a swan song for the, for the Primavera or whether he'll be staying, staying on at the club as a technical director or whether he'll be staying on as, as a coach next season. Um, with the Roma women, it's a, they're, they're really the, the only team in Roma that's flying high right now. They beat San Marino women back in March 2-0 with goals from Anna Maria Sertorini and Enieze Bonfantini that sealed the win on that day. We covered that on ChiesiTatati.com, on as we always do. And the woman has since been away on an international break with five Roma players called up to the Italy squad. It could have been more if you have Tecla petinuzzo and other Roma players who've earned a call up in the past but didn't get it this time around. But still, five is a, is a great number. And uh, in the interim, Roma have given their keeper, Camilla Chiazar, Romanian keeper, who is more or less an Italian, uh, adopted Italian by now, gave a one-year contract extension during his national break. And uh, Chiazza's team will return to action on the 17th of April in Serie A to face Fiorentina women. We've had an equally disappointing league campaign. They actually sit behind Roma at the table. Roma are currently four points ahead of Fiorentina. Uh, like Roma sit in, in fourth place, but they could really steal fourth place by winning away against Fiorentina, because that would open up a seven-point gap, which is 15 points left on the table after that game. Uh, of course, you get, you get no prizes for, finish, for finishing in the top four in the women's league. It's, it's top two or nothing. Uh, if you don't if you reach top two, you're not in Europe next season. So uh, really, the only thing that Roma would gain by getting fourth place would be a spot in next season's Super um, But the big date, the real big date for the Roma woman is the week after. 25th of April, Roma will travel away to Juventus taking a 2-1 lead in the Coppa semi-final with them to that second leg. Can Roma finish the job against the UA side who had previously not lost in two years, two calendar years before Roma just beat them earlier this spring? Uh, Can Roma finish that job and face either one of AC Milan women or Inter Milan women in the of final? We will see. 25th of April, mark that date in your calendars because it's certainly marked in mine. Now, speaking of Inter Milan women this week, the headlines are led by the rumor that Agnese Bonfantini and Raquel Baldi have been uh, linked with a room, move away from Roma to Inter. And believe me, Inter women are no force in, in Serie A for Manila. The they're, they're really not the same prospect as when you're talking about Inter on the men's side. Uh, but Bonfantini and Baldi have really suffered from a, a lack of playing time this season. So is Roma's squad too big? And how can uh, the coach, Betty Bavignoli, manage the, the squad? How can she trim down the fat eventually? I don't think she'd want to lose someone like Bonfantini or even maybe even Baldi, because both, as we said, both have been uh, two of those players who have occasionally been caught up by the Italy side and occasionally not. But they're both still very young, with a lot of upside to them. And uh, we'll see how it pans out. But on the men's side, finally turning to the Roman men's side, rumours of meetings with Massimiliano Arretti and Maurizio Sarri continue to persist this week. Will one of the last two winners of the Serie A Um, Be the next Roma coach? Is that? Are there any truth to these stories, Steve? What do you reckon?
0: I mean, these are the names we keep hearing over and over. You know, it's it's constantly Allegri, Sadi, Allegri, Sadi. I I don't think Allegri is coming. It doesn't seem to me like this is the type of squad he'd want to work with. You know, it's still a young, developing squad. Most of the squads he's worked with in the past seem to be those more veteran laden squads like he dealt with at, at Milan and, and Juventus where he won and was very successful. He's a great coach, um, great manager in terms of winning, but I don't know if Rome is a project he wants to take on. I th- I could see him more geared toward looking to a premier league club or, or maybe La Liga or something. Somebody is ready to win now. I don't know if that, you know, if that's the case, I could be completely wrong, but Allegri mm. seems to be out of their reach. Sadi to me seems a more likely candidate if, Um, the opportunity you know is there for him he might take it this time you know he was rumored the first time to come um, before he went to Juve you know his name was swirling around along with Fonseca's and Conte's last summer Um, I could see him being more likely I think uh, you know he is someone I think who would you know kind of like the challenge of of coaching in a place like Rome you know he's not a a shy personality the only reason I might see him not coming here is if uh maybe Napoli fires Gatuso and they look to bring him back maybe he looks to go back mm. to to Naples uh and work with that squad which is playing v- pretty well right now that's an interesting coaching um rumor mill over there as well but um
1: let, let, let me put it to you this way because what we are seeing in these articles that are linking both men to Roma is that they're saying both men would want significant investment in the team mm. which some some people are saying is uh an obvious statement to make that applies to any coach, even to Fonseca. Um, but so given that, you know, let's, let's say, let's for argument say that Roma are waiting ready, like Freakins are ready and waiting to make their big statement summer campaign by investing a lot into this team. Is, is that not their chance to then hire someone like Allegri and say that they mean business by giving them the players that he wants?
0: It could be. I, I just don't know how much money they have to spend right now. Um, you know, with COVID taking away revenues Um, you know, I I think you've, you've mentioned the past, there is kind of a relaxation to the FFP this year, right. With COVID, but kind of comes back around next year. So how do you make up that kind of revenue in a year? If, if you're not successful making it to the champions league and beyond, um, because you know, right now the top four is looking (laughs) like it's just going out the window in the past month or so. And without that champions league revenue, without stadium revenues, I find it hard to believe that, you know, the Freedkins, even with major investments are going to want to splash too much cash in this climate yeah. you know in this financial climate that's the thing that makes me a little hesitant i don't know it just seems in the past that you know it's hard for roma to attract these big name established managers and mm-hmm. this climate might be even tougher unless the Friedkins are able to convince someone you know they're a little different than Palota from what we've seen so you know maybe they might be able to sell the project a little bit better maybe they're you know, hands-off approach might be more appealing to a veteran manager like an Allegri who doesn't need, you know, Jim to breathing down his neck if that's the case, you know. So
1: maybe <laughs> maybe it. it could be, you know? It's a good point you make. I mean, yeah, if if FFP all things standing comes back in January twenty twenty two, uh, that's not even enough time for Allegri to win the scudetto with Roma yeah. in, in Dreamland. You know, so there's there's really no commercial revenue that you can plan towards in the short term in terms mm-hmm. of making up the, the level of expense they'd have to to sink into the club so yeah i think it's an excellent point you make um i, I only ask because on the radio today we saw Mario concerti very very renowned football commentator who claims that Paolo fonseca is receiving all the criticism right now all, all the uh you know, he's the boss of all our frustration because the verdict on the freaking board is to be seen quote unquote and we're all left hoping that this board uh will spend big money but until then we can really only vent our disappointments on the coach. Uh, because we we don't we don't really know anything about who's in charge of the club to know what their ambitions are or criticise them or anything really. Uh, there's also been some criticism to the Frieskin silent approach this week, uh, from especially from Antonio Felici of Centro Sport uh, for letting Jim Palotta's interview uh, become the, the the main talking point of uh, the town square this week in Rome. Uh, they you know, Felici thinks that the owner should speak up and really keep Roma in the present but it's you know the big talking point of the week we can't deny it. it's the elephant in the room it's Pilotta's tell all interview to the athletic this week it was a long read with 11 distinct different mini chapters within I believe Steve you only just finished reading it just before we got on the air um, so that's what we're going to tackle right now we're going to break down the highlights of Pilotta's interview and Steve I'm going to ask you what you make of um, each each You know, each segment that he had to share in part upon us with it of his time as Roma owner in the 2010s. Uh, The introduction, introduction, when you read this, Steve, uh, I don't know about you, but when I read it, the opening, I kind of feared that it was just going to be a fluff piece because it it was really like uh, framing everything as though Pilot had carried Roma to untold success and uh, ob- obstacles that were out of control been put in this way so did, did you have the same fear or, did, or were you reading article like you know almost like locked yeah in from the you
0: know it's it's interesting when you read an article like this with a with a lengthy interview um because you don't know what Palotto agreed to talk about sometimes or any big big time you know figure like a former owner or former president of a country for for that matter you know sometimes those questions are posed in a way where it makes the person look good just to make them look good. Like you said, like that fluff interview. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought Horncastle did a pretty good job in this. I don't think it was, you know, a, a complete fluff interview at all. I think there were some uh, things he did point out some discrepancies through the interview um, in terms of, I think there was something about Totti's retirement and there was something about Monchi's name and there was a couple of things that Horncastle did, you know, in his parts talk about yeah. that, you know, Maybe did, went against what Pelota said, or just clarified what Pelota said. So I, I yeah. wouldn't call it a fluff interview. So that that I think was a, a relief.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it. By the time I got done reading it, just that the opening was uh, sort of very rosy, really. Yeah. <laughs> but um, like for example, with the opening, do do we agree with uh, Roma's semi-final run in the Champions League being described as the, the, the kind where the city atmosphere had not been seen since? Uh, to the 2001's league title win is that is that gay okay, Steve
0: I mean I think that was fairly accurate just in the sense I mean the only other times I've the only times I've seen Roma win a trophy in my time as a fan because I've started you know paying attention to Calcio after 2001 where the Copa yeah. Italia wins and I don't know what the atmosphere was like in the city then but you know after Barcelona it, it had that feel of like a championship win because there's yeah. that kind of statement win on the European stage Roma had not seen for a long time um, yeah. so I, I don't think that's too far you know out of the realm of possibility. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh,
1: well that, when when they talk talking about the, the beginnings at Rome, um, what, what, how do you, in retrospect now, how do you, how do you make it out as uh, foreign ownership in Syria? How, how important does it proved to be? Like, will we see lasting changes from, from uh, like the marks that, like the small marks, that like the marks behind the scenes that people like Pilotto have left behind? Because on the one hand, you have ratio between the club and the ultras is it will never be the same again you know they have like even practical changes like the way season tickets are now sold online you have to you know, have an account with the club you have to sign up with your phone uh, you know really making sure that, that tickets are sold fairly on the open market rather than under the table where they were before where you know you sort of strike up a, a bargain with the ultras beforehand and then the rest would get a price afterwards so you know the small changes like that and even a of working with the prefect of Rome um for a few years in terms of crowd trouble you know, that, that those are changes that probably wouldn't have come in had you had not had an outsider willing to do things differently so w- will that ultimately lead to bigger changes but uh, or will it be, will you see will, will that not will that not last because on the other hand we've seen stagnation with the tv rights how they're negotiated
0: Yeah. I mean, in a Roma perspective, I I think it'll last because we now have another American ownership group and these groups are coming in, looking at it from more of a business perspective uh, Mm -hmm. than from a fan perspective, I think. And in some ways that that's a breath of fresh air for Italian football, because we've seen how dysfunctional, you know, Calcio can be just with even the decisions around COVID this year and how they seem to favor certain teams when game matches are postponed. And, you know, the match uh, with Napoli, how unfairly they were treated before they finally won their appeal to get it rescheduled. And then, I know recently Sassuolo Inter was rescheduled, but, you know, Torino Lazio didn't get the same treatment. So there's all those kind of things too, where you just see like favoritism within within the league. And I know people will rattle on about referee favoritism for teams like Juventus. I'm not going to go there, but I, mm-hmm. I think you, you do need this uh, injection of this American uh, kind of, I'm sure in Britain, it's a similar approach to ownership where it's now more 21st century business driven, you know, because... it's a very Italian thing in some ways to see like this favor for a favor. Okay. You know, you're, I I remember there was one part in the interview that stuck out to me where when Polota took over and they were talking about merchandising, how there was like a warehouse with like, I think it was like 10,000 women's thongs thongs because, (laughs) you know, somebody within the club had a a relative who manufactured thongs. So the team just bought it like 10,000 of them to do the guy a favor and they knew they could never sell them. So, you know, those kind of almost mafioso, um, you know, tendencies, I think needed to be
1: patrimony. Yeah.
0: Or the patrimony, like that under the table stuff, favor for a favor, help out, uh, you know, a uh, family member or something. If you want to grow as a club on a world stage, that does have to go out the windows. Hopefully the Freakins keep most of that out, which I think they will, because they're here with that same business minded approach. Um, You know, of course, some of the nostalgia gets lost for the the, the people in the curva and things like that um but i guess you have to change with the times in some ways too
1: yeah i agree with you patrimony has certainly been holding the whole of southern europe back not just italy mm-hmm. um you know, as, as someone who speak you've uh, traveled regularly between britain and, and italy you know people of my age in italy often lament the fact that things come easier to me when, when i'm living in london that that don't come so easily over there uh because you know obviously in, in a patrimonial country you're expected to Respect your elders and and let them uh, take all the decisions for a, a long, long time. And you know, as you said, things just don't tend to move with the times. Um, but uh, the, the way that uh, the way that the TV rights have gone down this season makes me um, question whether 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 we're really moving into a, a, an era where Italian football will put in those th- degrees of separation that are needed to, for people to actually negotiate on merit. Um, but that's, that's a bigger topic than mm-hmm. we, can, we can tackle right now. Uh, the Roma in, he inherited, that was uh, you know, the next segment of his interview, and I'll even read a segment from that. This is Horncaster's writing right here. He wrote, Pelotta expected ex- understanding from UEFA. He took the FFP laws seriously and went to the Federation's headquarters in Switzerland to give a talk on how Roma were going to, to become compliant. The meeting itself was funny, Pilotta recalls. Because a couple of people on the panel were sleeping during our entire presentation. He glanced at Roma's general director, Malra Balisoni, incredulous at those in dignitaries. Pelota still left Nyon confident they had made a persuasive case. He claims to have been told it was, quote, the most comprehensive and best presentation, unquote, UEFA had ever received, and the auditors apparently appreciated the way Roma, quote unquote, treated us like humans when they visited the club's offices. It made no difference. Roma was slapped with a fine. And had to enter a strict settlement agreement due to historical deviation from UEFA's break-even requirements stemming from the past economic losses and the challenging financial situation of the club before the current ownership's takeover. So, Steve, my question to you from listening to all that is, should the Freakins now play hardball with UEFA given these revelations from Pilata?
0: Yeah, I mean, when I read that section, that, that one line from Palota really stuck out to me that a couple of the people in the panel were sleeping during the presentation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I could see why he would look at Baldassoni incredulous because here's someone who's used to working in the hedge fund industry, you know, and, and being a serious businessman. You have people sleeping through what they then described, the ones that were awake at least, you know, the most thorough basically uh, presentation they've seen, the most comprehension and best presentation. And then to then be slapped with these um, you know, FFP rules because of the past ownership group, it seems a bit harsh, um, mm. you know, if Roma did make their case so clearly. And I don't see why the Friedkin shouldn't play hardball, and not only just because of what Palota said, but because of what we've seen, how easily, I believe it was Manchester City, right, that got off the hook rather easily this year, or Barcelona, yeah, one of those yeah, clubs. Yeah, uh,
1: Manchester City was slapped with the penalty, but they UEFA basically couldn't enforce that penalty. Yeah, City uh, so, so got it more or less overturned because they just had more money than UEFA.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. At that point, the freekins should say, well, you know, if they could play hardball, we should play some hardball, too. I know Roman doesn't have the financial uh, clout of of the ownership group of city yeah. or you of, know, of the
1: state, the state of Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Yeah. Basically <laughs> the state of
0: Abu Dhabi. But, you know, I, I, it's, it's worth a try, you know, because you're inheriting yeah. another financial mess. So why not at least try to get something knocked off? Maybe some kind of uh, plea bargain, quote unquote, you know, some kind of compromise, maybe even if you yeah. can't completely defy the the powers that be but you know yeah. if is telling the 100 truth there what a what a bad look that is for ua for that people are sleeping through ffp um you know hearings
1: yeah yeah if if he is if he, as long as he's not adding some extra sauce in it just to get his point across but yeah what from the way he said it i kind of got the impression that um turning up as like the guy who's eager to impress, maybe they felt like, okay, this is a, this is a club we can make an example of. Cause there'll be, mm. there'll be pushovers and we'll, we'll show them, you know, we'll show the rest of Europe that we, we mean business against clubs that step out of line uh, by making Roma that example. Um, and maybe the free things can learn from this by, by not being the example this time around.
0: Yeah. And I wonder um, if it has to do with him being American too, not being a European owner who's familiar with, you know, football mm, in general, really.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, And in that section, again, Horncastle continued with uh, writing this. Pilotta did not attend many Celia shareholder meetings, but the ones he did go to were eye-opening. I've never seen anything like that, he says. It was like a front row ticket to the Royal Rumble. Pilotta recalls looking around, thinking to himself, they're going to start climbing over the tables and start hitting each other. He chuckles at the memory of it. There were arguments and disagreements where I was like, this is actually kind of cool. This might be a cool thing to watch, but the novelty soon wore off. As a co-owner and executive board member with the Celtics until 2020, Pilotta was used to US sports where the commissioner works for the owners to grow the business around the NBA, the NFL, NHL, and MLB. If you take the Premier League, he says, you have somebody running the league, correct? If you take La Liga, the last bunch of years, you have somebody who's running the league. In Italy, tell me who ran the league? Deciding on anything was as challenging then as as it is now. There are all kinds of agendas and stuff, Pilotta observes. What was frustrating from the league level was everybody didn't agree on things or even come close to majority on how the league should be run. Now, Steve, we can actually see Pilates was put in evidence this season because with a new Dazzle domestic deal that's uh, just a shaved under a, a billion euros per season, that didn't come lightly. You know, that, that came with uh, the clubs kicking and screaming every step of the way. And doesn't only really received their majority vote. Right in the eleventh hour before I would have been forced to go back to you know putting the biz back on the table, so um you know is is there any kind of like in the light of that is there any kind of hope that these divisions between the lead chiefs will change in the future or will they not? You know do do you do you, do you think it's appropriate to ask for a commissioner role to be. Adopted instead, yeah, like like U.S. sports.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing because you see the way the NFL is run like a business with a commissioner's office and Major League Baseball here, and then you know they mentioned the Premier League. These are the most successful leagues in the world, you know, and not just in their country. You know, the Premier League, the most successful football league financially for a reason. The NFL brings in tons of money for a sport that's really uh, an American sport. You know, um, mm-hmm. so I, I don't think a commissioner could be a bad thing, especially if it's someone who is truly neutral and could really run the league with an eye for business for all the teams involved, not just the, the big boys, not just for Juventus, so to speak. I mean, I, I think of his, his first, uh, you know, interactions with these, these guys at these board meetings. And, you know, I could imagine this is when Berlusconi was still around and him and Agnelli probably going at each other's throats. And then you probably yeah. have like Lotito trying to get in the mix. And like, you got these characters like Preziosi and Zamparini at the time. So I yeah. could imagine what it was like compared to like, working with the Celtics and going to an NBA type uh, meeting where everybody's looking to make money. Yeah. Everybody wants to win, but everybody's also looking at it from the business perspective. And I think that's the big difference with uh, Italian football from what we've seen is that sometimes it's not all about business. You know, sometimes these old rivalries come, come, you know, ahead of the the business aspect and it's like almost uh smite your nose to spite your face kind of thing where you know if i'm gonna screw this guy over here you know if you're rome you're gonna screw lotito Lo so to, for for example then you know maybe we'll make a little less money and i think that not, that that could come to the detriment of the league
1: Well, are not now you're making me think of something that i didn't think about before which is in, in america do you have club owners that use um uh, like success with sport as a, as a launch pad to like a political career or, or something like that, because like obviously we know that in in Italy, Berlusconi mm. brought about the big spending of Serie A, it was really because he, he identified Milan as um, like one of his tools to become president. And uh, same with Tanzi at Palermo, even though he failed, but, you know, he he, he had political ambitions. Uh, you have the Etnielis who... Uh, really see UVA as their portfolio as part of the own, owning Fiat the Fiat Group. So is is there an equivalent in America, or is, is it really sports centric over there?
0: I'm trying to think. I, you know, I know Mark Cuban threw his name and around a little bit um, before the Democratic primaries a couple of years ago um, because he was he's very anti Trump. I'm trying to think if anybody actually turned it into a career though, because he hasn't done anything with it since. You know, he's on Shark Tank, I guess. You know, so he's turned into a a different a uh, different yeah. turn for fame, but um definitely some coaches and and players have you know turned into congressmen and senators and things like that i can't recall um an owner off the top of my head but you know some owners are very boisterous like george Steinbrenner, when he was the yankees owner was all over you know he reminded me of pelota in that sense um pelota reminded me of him in that sense whereas the freedkins are more of your typical american ownership group that you know i I think about most owners in american sports you don't hear too much from them for the most part yeah um Polo kind bet, of bucks uh, that trend.
1: Yeah, no, I, I asked you because I think, I think you make an excellent point is that when these owners, especially in the 2010s, are turning up um, in Italy, it's like if really took, if you capture the, the hearts of the Calcio fans at the time when, when football was more popular then, it's still popular now in Italy, but it was more popular then, um, you captured the hearts of like young men all around the country and started yeah. going to create elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, like you said, maybe making money and, and doing what's best for business wasn't the priority. I mean, maybe it was even like third, third down in the yeah. agenda.
0: Yeah, I mean, look constantly. at Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia party. I mean, what, what better yeah. name for a party than if you want to bring in those young sports, uh, you know, crazed men.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, in that same segment, uh, Horncastle wrote something that, that Pete, Pete, to my eyebrows, because if it's true, I, I think I owe James P. Watson an apology. He said, by the time of the relocation to the Euro offices, which was in 2018, Roma's revenues had grown from uh, 122.7 million euros in 2011 to 250 million euros, a quarter of a billion, uh, with commercial income up 43%. Now, Steve, I could ask you if those numbers are true, but I don't think either of us know right now. Uh, we have to take Horncastle's word for it. But one of the things that one of the little details that we'll mention in the next segment was uh, Roma's decision to change the badge from the old crest to something that actually says Roma on it. To you know, spell out to even casual fans that they're from the city of Rome. Now, like I, I want to ask you, is it is it really accurate to make such a big deal out of that decision? I, I mean, I know Bren even talks about it and says it's it's a no-brainer to do it, and I agree it's a no-brainer. But in in the bigger perspective of growing a commercial income, I'll give you like for example, the fact that Real Madrid still play with their crests. Um, uh, several big clubs still play with a crest, and and really the story of the last two decades, uh, that these major clubs have made, have broken new commercial territory in in places like China, where you'd imagine that, uh, you know, the the Anglophonic name of a a city that really doesn't count for much, the Chinese fans' eyes, you know, symbolism could count even for more. So was, was that decision to change the crest really such a big deal, or was it just common sense and we move on?
0: Um, you know, looking at the way it's explained by by him, and you know, comparing it, I know ha- Horncastle also compared to the way PSG, you know, really emphasized Paris in their that their is. logo. Now, Um, yeah. it makes sense from a, a commercial standpoint when you're trying to approach, you know, appeal to fans from around the world. Roma has has name value, so I could see why they would do it. So it really doesn't bother me that much because they didn't change the symbol of Rome, which is the she-wolf with Romulus and Remus. And like you said, mm. symbolism is important. So the symbolism is still there in the crest. You know, I think that crest has a lot more appeal from a commercial perspective than the the Lupetto badge that many fans are crazy about, you know, that we have on our away jersey this year. Um, mm. You know, because that's the symbol of the city of Rome. That's that's more than Lazio can ever claim or another club can claim for a lot of cities, just like PSG has the Eiffel Tower in theirs, you know? Mm. So you have that that symbolism of the city itself, you know, a Real Madrid and a Manchester United, uh, Barcelona, those clubs' logos are so iconic at this point because they've won so much and they're so famous that yeah. they're always going to resonate. Um, look, Juventus changed their logo a couple of years ago. The most successful team in, in Italy, Inter Milan, is changing their crest for the upcoming season. Terrible change, yeah, in my opinion, but, but, in but both Juvent- cases. Juvent-
1: but Juventus got even more codified, though. They didn't, they didn't They didn't. make like a... Their symbolism got even more abstract. They put yeah. like a J with a line, Yeah. You know? Uh, you you know United Barcelona and Real Madrid, okay. The, the symbols are iconic, but if 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 this move to like spell out, especially if you come from a capital like Madrid, if 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 it's such a big edge to put into your commercial plan, surely you would cover all bases by keeping the symbolism and putting Madrid on underneath. The because they haven't yeah. done that, so that, that's why. I guess it's just a question to ask um, maybe Roma fans on Twitter. If you're from a country like China or, or well, I mean, Chinese Chinese can't speak on Twitter because there's all sorts of, like, regulations there, but, um, like, from the Middle East, you know, if you're from the Emirates, uh, let us know if you if you really care about um, seeing, like, knowing that uh, Roma comes from Rome or not, because uh, you know, like, I, I just think of, like, languages like Chinese, like there's several different languages in Chinese, but like, you know, Mandarin, Cantonese, um, they're, they're so, like, you can write back, you can write left to right, you can write right to left, you can write up to down, so I just feel like in those countries, it, it just seems like symbolism should be more important than than the agrophobic thing. But it's yeah, it's not a, it's not a point to die on the hill yeah. Right?
0: And I'll bring it back to the to the American perspective. I'm a Yankees yes. fan, like I've mentioned many times. That the mm-hmm. interlocking N Y is symbolic around the world. It, yes, it's almost become a symbol of New York more than the yeah. Yankees in some ways. So
1: for sure. But from a when, British what?
0: perspective, none of the London clubs are called London FC or anything. You know, they all have their own name, so you don't even have yeah. to worry about that London aspect.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um. And then Horncastle and Pilotta moved on to the, the, the stadium plans, the famous plans that fell through officially this year under the freekins that they called time on the Stadio della Roma. But Horncastle wrote, in Roma's run to the Champions League semi-finals in 2018, match revenue peaked at 34, 35.4 million euros, an 86% increase on when Pilotta came in, but that figure still trails behind clubs like Schalke. 47 million euros, who are not even in European competition that season. So that spells out how inefficient it is to actually sell a match day in, in the current Stadio Olimpico. Um, it's not even worth comparing with Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United and Bayern Munich, all of whom went beyond 100 million euro barrier. So if you're wondering why Serie a teams are mismatched, mismatched on European nights, and this comes from Horncastle, there's a big part of your answer. A new privately owned 52,500 seats to stadium promised to go a long way to closing that gap. We were talking about naming rats with some people for 15 million to 20 million euros just for that piece, Pilota says. There was to be a Roman museum like the, ones Juvent- like the one Juventus opened up next to the Allianz Incorporated into the Tour de Valle project, which is why the club set up an archive with 8,000 different objects, 120,000 photographs and 3,000 matches ready to view. Fans will be able to shop at the megastore. Absent from the Olympico, and visit the Hall of Fame that Palotta launched in 2012 to honor the club's legends. Uh, my question to you, Steve, is: well, How important has that Hall of Fame uh, turned out to be? And uh, it, does it kind of—I mean, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it, it still makes me like leaves my, my my mouth wide open. That it's still, it still—it took until 2012 for Roma to actually establish a Hall of Fame where you invite club legends back to the stadium. You let them have their moment, you let them keep in touch with the fans. I mean, it just seems like common sense that should have come in way, way long before Pilato.
0: Yeah, I mean, as an American sports fan, I, I keep going back to American sports in this episode, but yeah, I, you know, you make these comparisons. The Yankees have been retiring numbers for decades now. You know, they have Monument Park out in uh, on the outfield, which is one of the most iconic, you know, sports hall of fames for a single team. Um, but yeah. I even think to you know, this the hockey team you and I both like, the New York Islanders, you know they've only been around since the late 1970s and they have those banners hanging in the rafters. They celebrate that yeah. history when they won four straight Stanley cups in the eighties. And, yeah. you know, they haven't been very good since until recently they're starting to get good again, but they've always hung to that. Um, you know, that, that re- not so. Distant history, but that history that fans can cling to those legendary players. So a club like yeah. Roma, who's been around for almost a hundred years now, you know, we're, we're closing in on the hundredth anniversary in just, you know, less than a decade. Uh, to not have a place that celebrated some of those players you know, you know, even before Totti and De Rossi, the Giannini's and the Agostini, like how do you not celebrate players like that and even going farther back to the to the nascent years of the club I, is, is beyond me because even MLS teams like the Red Bulls still have already have like a, a kind of Hall of Fame for their 20th anniversary they honored okay. like their 20 best players of the first 20 years of the club so yeah crazy um, and it's a shame when you're talking about the stadium that it didn't come to fruition because when you have your own stadium, you can establish a more firm hall of fame that people can visit more easily on a match day. And they come an hour early for the hall of fame tour or something. And then they're buying more in the concession stands and things like that. Um, You know, and when you read the, if, if you get a chance to read this interview, I think the stadium talk was some of the most interesting stuff because it seems like the plan was a very robust plan, very well thought out. um, Something comparable to many of the American stadiums we see or some of the more modern European stadiums. I'm sure I haven't been to enough European stadiums to comment outside of the Allianz, but you know, the plan was there and and all the right intentions were there from Pelota. And I think that, you know, if you had to ask Pelota what his biggest regret was, I'm sure it'd be the stadium, you know, even more than the monkey monkey debacle and things like that. I mean, the stadium was his baby. It really would have brought, brought Roma to another level. You look at, they're making less money than Schalke, who's this year, just a couple years later from when that financial figures were calculated, is probably going down to Bundesliga 2 next year. Just shows, (laughs) you know, um, how poor it is for for Roma from that perspective. You know, the money that would have come in, it would have solved a lot of the financial issues.
1: Yeah, in in his own words, in this very same interview, Paul said that it still hurts that that stadium never got built. Um, And uh, we, I mean, from what we took from his interview is that, it was definitely the, the decision to go into business with Luca Parnassi and Uranova as the stadium constructor and, and the landowners in Torre the that, that really sunk the project from the beginning before it even got off the ground because there was a lot of mess that they created um, away from football that came to back to bite the project in the ass. But um, some, some people in the press recently have, have come with an alternative theory which is that um, the, the project was simply too ambitious and too big um, and they've, they've also suggested that the Freakins will now go with a more modest 40,000 seat of stadium do, do you think that's enough Steve to actually increase the club the club's match they take on the in with just a like a more like a Juve like stadium the yeah 40,
0: I was going to say I don't think the Alliance is much bigger than 40 um yeah. I think 52 is a, a more ambitious number especially if you want to host like European finals I, I think it's uh, you know, Rome has a little more name attraction than Turin to host like bigger events like that on the international stage. Um, yeah. So I guess the Stadio Olimpico would still win out sometimes for like a big European final or like, uh, you, you know, UEFA competition like the Euro Cup yeah. that we see this summer. Um, but, you know, if they can get 40, I guess we, we, we would take 40 at this point. But, you know, I think I don't know if Palota's project was too ambitious. I, I, like he had said, he maybe wasn't dealing with the right people at the time. Yeah. And, you know, like we talked about Italian bureaucracy and the, the kind of, you know, nepotism in Italian politics and like favor for a favor things. I wonder if as an outsider, it was just very difficult for him to break into that inner circle. And that was more the issue than the ambition, yeah. because, you know, I think of the, the, in the U.S. or the U.K. or some of these places, I can't imagine a stadium project that would help a major city, a capital city like Rome uh, in a New York or a D.C. or a London or or any of those kind of places, Being shut down so easily or a berlin even probably a more northern european um country without these kind of bureaucracy problems um i think it was more the italian bureaucracy than the the ambition of pelota because god there's plenty of cities in the u.s for their baseball or basketball or football teams i would love a new stadium you know (laughs) we've seen plenty built in the last decade in a couple years
1: yeah yeah well yeah you're spot on there at least my point of view you are um, with uh, uh, further on the stadium, they uh, went on further to say that we, we probably should have been more tuned to who were the pe- the best people to partner with there. Pilotta adds, people who were more running the city in ways, and we didn't do that. We were too late on the process of that. Um, certainly talking about Unova and Luca Pragnasi, as we mentioned, is is this the one area, Steve, where the Africans have definitely acted on Pilota's advice when he was uh, walking out Trigoria? Because uh, the club currently, as we know, is actually now defending itself from a lawsuit uh, from Euronova and Luka Panasi after Freakins broke away from the Stadio Della Roma project. Uh, the Euronova claimed that uh, Roma had no right to actually um, break away from the Stadio Della Roma, and, and they're actually making the argument that uh, the club are basically, you know, putting the city on the back foot by by reneging on this deal. <laughs>
0: Putting the city in the back foot. I mean, the city has been putting Roma on uh, more than the back foot for the last almost decade now. So yeah. I, I think the Friedkins have learned from Polotta's mistake, if you want to call it a mistake, I guess, in in working with with Uranova and Parnassi. Uh, yeah. I mean, how long can you wait for a stadium? By the time it gets approved, it takes a couple of years to build the stadium. We're going to be looking at, you know, even if a stadium gets approved tomorrow, you're looking at probably 13, 14 years from the original to plans before it's even completely built. So I think yeah. they're doing the right thing. If, if this guy couldn't get it done in 10 years, then what, you know, what are you still going to deal with him?
1: Fair enough, fair enough. Well, after the break, we'll come back with a little bit more of this Pilotta interview and we'll look forward ahead to, uh, well, we'll actually look back to the weekend's action against Sassuolo and we'll look ahead to the Europa League action against uh, Ajax and we'll deal with some reader questions after this commercial break. Okay, we're back and we're going to get straight back into the second half of James Pilotta's interview with The Athletic. Where he touched upon Totti, Monchi, and Rossi, three names that certainly always evoke emotion uh, in, the Roma, Roma, in the Roma verse for very different reasons. First of all, there's Totti's retirement, um, I won't I won't throw any direct quotes at you, Steve. But do we believe Pelota here, or do we believe Totti? Because there there is there is a large discrepancy between the two men's uh, stories about whether you know Totti Totti came out and said that he was never trusted by the club, and Pelota said that basically he put in the course to Totti and Totti never answered. So is, is who do you believe? Is, is it true somewhere in between?
0: I mean, I'd have to imagine it's somewhere in between. Um, you know, Totti is a legend. We all love Totti. Um, but, you know, they're both big personalities. And, you know, some of it, Palotta said, when they, you know, they wanted Totti to be with the club and kind of figure out what he wanted to do. At one point, he thought he wanted to coach rather than go into scouting, like was suggested to him by the club. So they got him um, some not teachers, but, you know, people to school him in the art of coaching a bit, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he then quickly realized it wasn't for him. Um, unlike someone like De Rossi, who is more of that type of personality, Totti realized he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to go that route. And he decided to, you know, get more into the player scouting, you know, um, technical director type of aspect. And and then he decided to leave the club. And now, look, he's in, he's in scouting himself now. So I'm sure that the truth is somewhere in between – Maybe just the personalities didn't mesh well. Maybe it was difficult for Totti to take on a different role with the club that he's been a player with for so long. You know, sometimes it's hard to take on that different role at, when you're going to uh, Trigoria every day to train, and he wouldn't be training anymore. So maybe it was, you know, it, it, it's hard to know what was really going on in both men's head, in their hearts. Um, I'm sure Pelota did not want to cut ties with Totti completely. Um mm in terms of how much input Totti had, I'm sure there were other personalities besides Pelota, like the Monchis of the world, who, you know, may have listened to what his suggestions were, but, you know, someone like Monchi or some of these other guys who have been in the front office realm longer might say, you know, yeah, he's a great player, but does he really know what he's yeah, talking you know, about? I'm, yeah.
1: You know? Yeah. I'll tell you why it's hard for me to believe Totti's version of events, at least on the, on the day he left and did that Coney press conference, is because, um, and this, this is without calling into question... What totti's given to the club because that's indisputable but um his version of events were sort of like undressed towards the end of that interview by alessandro ostini's final question towards him because totti spent that press conference that he called himself you know he 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 called it he gathered those journalists at the Coney mm. center and um you know spoke for maybe two hours about how he had so much so many ideas to give to the club he wasn't being listened to etc cetera, etc cetera. and then Ostini actually asked him a very good question at the end of it where he asked him, "Okay, so now that you're no longer associated with the club, um, if a player came and rang you tomorrow and, and asked you uh, as technical director of Roma, um, well, what what should I what why should I sign for Roma? What would you say?" And Totti's answer was, you know, like after like basically struggling for about ten seconds or so, says, "You know, like I I'd tell them to come for the beach, the weather, you know, um, and like he really like." Labor through that answer, and that didn't sound like a man who had like plenty of ideas written down and just mm-hmm. like you know, was, you know banging on the board's door and not being listened to. So, um, you know, I am loath to believe Plauto on most subjects because I, you know, I do actually like a lot of stuff that Plauto says. I, I recognize like the, the kind of like the he spreads on top, the salesman kind of delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this one, I actually I actually do give Plauto the benefit of the doubt, to be honest. But like you're saying, I, I do believe the truth is somewhere in between. Uh, maybe Totti just didn't know how to express or get his, his point across and and there was the, the wall that he was banging on. Um, but yeah, that's uh, old territory by now. Um, Monchi's hiring Here's what Horncastle and Palotta had to say on this. Pelota believes the local press court often got it twisted about how decisions were made. He blamed the media for, quote, reporting that Monchi is basically a puppet That's going to do what Franco Baldini wants him to do, which is 100%, 100% false. He wanted badly to work with Franco, and he wanted to learn from Franco, unquote. Pelosi claims the coverage had consequences. Quote, he, Monchi, was so against getting help. After one month, it was just so clear. He felt that he had to prove he was Monchi, that he was not going to listen to anything we came up with from our data. He wasn't going to listen to anything we came up with internally. Nothing. Zero. The other mistake I made is like, I should have realized that he calls himself Monchi. It's like calling yourself Madonna. That should have been a warning sign for me, unquote. Uh, do we believe Pallotta here or do we believe Monchi is Steve or is, is that truth in, in the middle? Because remember, <laughs> it, in in this case, we actually have less room to say that there's there's two truths there because this directly goes against some uh, versions of events from Monchi of what little we have during his time at the club. Like for example, remember the Malcolm Trump saga where um, Monchi specifically the day after, as uh, like Pilata was already having his direct say on transfers because he, he'd actually phoned up Monchi and insisted on making that final raise the bid offer on Malcolm. And, and Monchi was very specific to get in front of the cameras that the day after, after the transfer bid had failed and said it was against my advice, but the owner said let's let's agree to like, you know, borders increased demands and I put in the final offer Malcolm on chairman's advice. So this is really one where it's one guy's word against the other who do you believe
0: yeah <laughs> it's interesting because we know how much uh you know pull baldini had with Pelota from from the reports mm-hmm. um monchi came in with a reputation did maybe he want to learn a little bit from baldini about italian soccer at the beginning of italian football perhaps i don't know um but i would imagine that there would be a clashing of personalities when you have baldini and monchi in the same room trying to make transfer decisions um So I don't know if he really wanted to learn from Baldini at first. It's hard to know what was going on, but I'm sure the press, you know, saying, oh, Baldini's making all the decisions. He's the one really, you know, Monchi's a puppet kind of thing. I'm sure would have gotten under Monchi's skin very quickly because he came in with a reputation. You know, he wasn't some new brash, young, um, you know, transfer guru. He was a guy with a proven record, Um, you know, I'm I'm sure Palota, you know, twisted his ear on certain things like the Malcolm thing, like you need to do this. But in the end, I mean, Monchi was the one who made most of those, those transfer decisions. And, you know, I don't think Roma fans will ever forgive him for many of those moves he made. Uh, And it was funny because the one move that, you know, probably was the best move under Monchi's tenure was the Zaniolo move. Right. And in the interview, Pallotta pretty much said that was all Baldini, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if that's the case, you know, Monchi's record looks even worse because if he was the one that called up and said, you know, we're not sending over Nainggolan unless you give us Zaniolo, then kudos to Baldini if that's the case. But um, we know he was definitely working um, without a title for Roma for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was a difficult way for Monchi to work, but Monchi's, you know, transfer record speaks for itself in Rome. In the couple of 18 months he was there.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I have no problem believing that Monty felt deeper into his ego um, because he felt like he was being undermined by the press and you know, took it upon himself to prove a point that was fatal to prove. Um, I could definitely imagine any any person becoming their own worst enemy in that under that pressure. Yeah. So, I've got, got a problem with that, but my problem was with Pallotta's reasoning because really his only way of taking or accepting responsibility in this interview is by saying I... I blame myself for appointing the guy who's to blame. Yeah, that's 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 not really saying much. much Insightful, you know, because if you're going (laughs) to take responsibility, why, if you recognise that your sporting director is suffering from the pressure he's being put under the bad press, why wouldn't you just manage the situation yourself? Yeah, why 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 wouldn't you then support him in the press, or why wouldn't you arrange things at the club so that you give Baldini a job title Mm -hmm. or remove the ambiguity? You know, that that's taking responsibility. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because if Baldini's working in the shadows all the time, it, it creates that kind of mysticism around him. And uh, yeah. is he the one really pulling the strings for Pallotta without the title? And, and I think a title might have helped that situation a bit. I think you're right in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be clear, on a personal level, I have no problem with Baldini's uh, involvement at the club, whether official or unofficial. But I, I never did. But I'm just pulling up examples of the options that Pallotta had to actually I mean, he's 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 lamenting in his interview that he he left too much responsibility to one guy in rome but if if you recognize at the, at the same time that that guy is uh reacting negatively to the pressure he's under then why not use those options to take some of the situation in hand yourself and actually make that guy's job easier you know
0: yeah that's, and he admitted really he admitted to yeah. in the interview sorry to cut you off that it was his decision to hire Monchi uh, without interviewing yeah. anybody else that yeah. Baldini had a list of three candidates for him and he didn't even bother interviewing the other candidates. Um, yeah. So clearly he gave Monchi carte blanche to come to Rome that he was so willing to come to Roma when he had turned down teams like Barcelona in the past to remain at Sevilla, kind of in a, a much uh, quieter place where he could do his work.
1: Yeah. And then uh, he also says, you know, that he he, he feels like he, he gave Monchi... Uh, too much comp for too long but I, like you said like like I said sorry I pointed out that with Monty's uh, interview the day after that Malcolm transfer that, that was the summer of 2018 that's only one year into in, into Monty's tenure like you know, most most football people would tell you you need three years uninterrupted to actually put in mm. put in place something for a club that has an actual ambition behind it so if, you, if you're already having your say 12 months in um you know you're you're clearly you've clearly gone back on your decision to hire Monchi and give him full autonomy already within 12 months. And then you, you're still not actually making the decisions that would make Monty's job, job easier in your own opinion. You know, so that's for me where Plotter uh, lets himself down as, as a, as a man manager and as a club owner, because he's, he's really just coming up with uh, problems that he, he has solutions to and he just doesn't use them, you know, I don't don't really understand how how Pallotta doesn't see that himself, but maybe it's easier said than done for me on the outside, sitting on the sidelines. Um, Then Honkastor and Pallotta moved on to De Rossi's retirement. And uh, Honkastor wrote, the reasoning behind the Totti and De Rossi decisions was, from Pallotta's perspective, not too far removed from how he approached the sales of Strutman and Nangolan. He needed fit and healthy starters and fit and healthy backups. Calculation was simple. If a first-choice player gets hurt and misses six months, you have a problem. If the alternative in this position can only play one game a week in a 50 to 55-game season. Um, Steve, in your view, does this this actually make sense from a team-building perspective, this whole idea that you should have a a squad where you have uh, one starter and and one backup? So you have basically 22 starters, as as Monchi said it. Because considering now that we've seen since then uh, Fonseca and Petraki, for however little that lasted, um, they took a different approach where, like for example, they're, they're molding the Brian Cristantes of the world into a backup for multiple positions where you can have mm-hmm. a smaller squad and smaller expenses.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can see where both approaches would work if you have that kind of Swiss Army knife utility type player uh, we see that in baseball a lot where one guy can play three positions in the infield to save roster spots because rosters are limited in, in Major League Baseball, whereas they're not in football, European football, so to speak. Uh, so that approach does make sense, like what Fonseca has done this year. But I also see Monchi's side of it. If you're playing in the Champions League and you're playing in the Copa Italia and Serie A, I mean, this season would be the biggest example of that where you're playing a very condensed schedule and we see the, mm-hmm. the, the, where the injuries are re- really wearing Roma thin. And Roma, for example, in the defense, almost has a starter for every position two times. If they yeah. wanted to, you know, they have a, a pretty deep defense, and look how thin it's still worn this year. Um, yeah. You know, knock on wood, John Luca Mancini is the one guy who has really survived the injury crisis um, because they they've been playing, you know, wing backs and defense. But so I see where Monchi's idea is that you want to have two guys. Now, it, it, this is one of those situations. It's tough because from a club perspective, you see why. Uh, a player at the point that Rossi was in his career might not be as desirable to keep around. Um, but I think the other issue was that they didn't adequately bring in someone who can play the bulk of the games if they needed to in mm-hmm. his position. We saw for so long, who's the the vice that Rossi? You know, bring in Zonzi, bring in, um, you know... Van Curve. Van these <laughs> other guys. Like, I guess Zonzi was supposed to be that guy. And maybe if Zonzi showed in that first season that he could carry the load, um, because that or was... It-
1: well, I think, what that I think in this calculation they're talking about is actually Nzonzi is a guy who gets hurt and misses six months, even though he yeah. didn't. But theoretically, he yeah. is the guy. And then the alternative is the Rossi, Rossi, who yeah. is signed to an extension and can only play a game a week. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a tough, it's
0: a tough dilemma because I thought you know De Rossi still could have given the club another year or two. I was, I was more shocked at the De Rossi cutting the ties than Totti because we were kind of given that season to prepare for Totti, like it was his farewell. You know, yeah. kind of tour De Rossi was very abrupt uh, yeah. I remember being shocked when it when the news came out that they were just not going to sign him to a new contract um, yeah. especially when he offered to do a, a pay for play kind of contract that maybe could have afforded Roma to bring in another depth type option if they wanted to so I thought that was you know that the, they he handled both of those a, a bit messy in a sense. Because he even admitted with the Totti one that he wanted Spalletti back. He liked the work that Spalletti had done. And Spalletti had guided Roma to, uh, I think it was their highest point season, right? His last season was his highest point season. I think it was seven-pointer. Yeah,
1: club record points. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, you know, I could see why he would want Spalletti back, but you put all this negative media pressure on him by not handling the Totti situation better that Spalletti said, screw this, I'm going to Milan. I'm going to coach Inter <laughs> with uh, Sabatini. So,
1: Well, yeah, I... It, I I mean, we were just joking on the air. I was joking on before we got there that I, I'm a thorn in Spalletti fan side because I would <laughs> like to offer the different take on it. But I'm going to do that here as well because uh, Spalletti specifically got negative attention after losing that, that Rida della Capitale in yeah. March. Um, and that was one of three big matches that he lost that week. And that wasn't being dependent on Totti. That was um, being only dependent running Salah Nangalana to the ground yeah. and then having seeing Totti come off the bench. To um, to actually bail out the team eventually, so I, I, that's why I have a I have an issue with Lottie, uh, sorry, Spalletti. Sorry, uh, Now, like retrospectively, kind of like is this is worrying times that he's being made out to be like a martyr that was hardly done by by Totti. Um, I don't agree with that because I, I of all the issues I have with Spalletti is actually a, I have issues with him as a coach. I don't have issues with his, his handling of Totti, but I mean his handling of Totti was a great. But um, but I. I, like, put it this way, I don't have issues with Totti retiring when he did. If anything, I felt like he probably should retire sooner to make it easier for everyone yeah. else. Um, I only have issues with Spalletti as a coach, and I've found like uh, Spalletti, kind of like Maurizio Sarri, could be accused of being over over on his first team, his first 13, without really rotating in other players, because he hasn't really left uh, any room for players to come in and, and, and perform to a level where they can be that B-team player. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, I guess what I'm asking you with respect to De Rossi is, if you put aside like all the, the politics and the weight of the De Rossi name, because uh, you know you're hiring a young coach like Fonseca, and then you've got uh, the thorny issue of what you do with De Rossi at the club. You put that all to one side, and talk about uh, Fonseca's how he's like used these multi-role players like Cristante to, to fill in for this 55 55 game season. Um, do you think that De Rossi survives at the club with, with Fonseca on the bench?
0: I think he, he could did. have. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, being the young coach, I, I think he would put less pressure, meaning De Rossi, on a, a young manager than Ototti would. I think De Rossi would have taken on a lesser role with a little more dignity, so to speak, because mm-hmm. he's a little less. And I, I love Francesco Totti. I say this in, in an endearing as endearing way as I possibly can. Uh, he's a little more egotistical, I think. And that's kind of the striker mentality, I think. Uh, yeah. a little more. De Rossi is the hard-nosed play for the team de- defensive midfielder, and the later in his career he got, he almost became more of a coach on the pitch in some ways, uh, yeah. a second manager. Um, I think he could have survived in this setup more because uh, a Cristante could have filled in for him more, or maybe De Rossi slides to that back three when needed, um, which yeah. we saw sometimes in his career. So yeah, I think that could have extended his career. And like I'd I, I, like I mentioned with that pay-for-play, I think De Rossi was willing to do anything for the team that was needed.
1: Yeah. I, I asked you because I, isn't, isn't that isn't that the value of a coach like Palafonseca? Is that you, you can then afford to assign, like, your you know, plot's calculation goes out the window. Yeah. Because you can afford to assign uh, De Rossi on an extension and mm-hmm. keep that conflict around the club. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, um yeah. Uh, but I guess my second question to you, given what you've said, is would uh, this season, would you then have rather have gone with uh, Monchi or Sabatini's stance of like, uh, bringing a bigger squad to the club, or would you stick with Petrakis and Fosica's approach?
0: Yeah, I mean this season's kind of an aberration. Um, so I guess in in some ways the the Monchi Sabatini 22 man approach would be more fitting in a season like this. As the season's worn on, we did we saw early in the season Roma uh, physically was doing pretty well compared to past seasons. They didn't have too many big injuries early on. They had to deal with Smalling being out a bunch, uh, but the other guys stayed pretty healthy. But now that as the season's dragged on, they've been playing so many two match weeks we've seen where that 22 man roster could have been a benefit because in past seasons you know we've seen roma dealing with injuries from october so i yeah. think the schedule has really gotten to them this year
1: fair enough fair enough well you take it from here that's, yeah. that's the end of our, our recap in the, the headlines but now we're going to get into the, the actual football steve
0: yeah so if anybody has a, a subscription to the athletic it's definitely worth a read uh to 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 see the entirety of that pull to interview but You know, now we'll get to the more depressing news, which was Roma drawing 2-2 against Sassuolo this past weekend. Uh, A match that Roma probably, you know, in the stat line shouldn't have won. Uh, The 2-2 is probably the fair result, the way the match played out. But giving up the second goal so late in the match, it was around the 85th minute, uh, was the the painful part. Watching Raspadori score so late to to steal two points from Roma um, was definitely depressing. You know, but when you look at the way the match played out with Sassuolo controlling 69% of possession according to who scored, uh, it was it was tough to watch from a Roma perspective, even though Roma had their chances on goal. Uh El Suari missed a couple chances. Um, there's a couple other chances Roma missed in their, you know, on their way to those two goals, missing many big names. You know, you know, that has to be said Mikatarian was out, smalling was out, Vertu was only on the bench. Um, you know Ibanez and VR were suspended so it was a very thin roster for Roma but they were going going up against a similarly thin roster in Sassuolo because all the Italian national team players were held out for precautionary reasons uh, after that COVID outbreak in the Italy camp so no Berardi no Caputo no Locatelli uh, no Gianmarco Ferrari in the back uh, and then there was also the injuries to the Frel so you know it was a match that most weeks even with the Roma injuries you'd fancy Roma to win but I, I didn't care for the approach. I know you didn't see the match, Sean. I know you were, you were busy. You were probably better yeah, sp- off being busy.
1: I sped myself the pain. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but Roma, Sean, just set, and we've seen them do this plenty this season where they sit back and look to counter. Um, but I don't know. I mean, against a team like Sassuolo, who was so depleted, I didn't. I didn't care for the approach. Um, hmm. to cede so much possession just to give Sassuolo the ball let them pass it around and look to counter I know that's been the approach against some of the bigger teams but against a, a side like Sassuolo I, I didn't I didn't like it uh, hmm. I, I didn't care for it personally I thought Roma should have been a little more aggressive in their pressing especially when you have um, you know a young striker like Raspadori up front not any of the big names in the attack or the midfield really outside of I think Bogo is really the only big name and Juricic is a you know a veteran but I thought Roma could have done a little bit more there. Um, mm-hmm. a, a telling stat that came out of this, I, I saw—I um, think it was Jacopo Aliprandi from Corriere dello Sport—you know—tweeted it after the match that in the last nine matches, Roma attacking players have scored just once in the league. Um, mm-hmm. Very concerning um, because you know we—you know—we see Mo- Mayoral leading the Europa League in goals, joint goal-scoring leader, and. You know they have. He has not produced in the league of late. Um, Neither has Jeco. Neither has uh, El -El Sharari. Neither has Pedro. Uh, These guys are not producing without Mkhitaryan out there. It's very concerning.
1: Mm. Um, What? That's that's what I was going to ask you. Have have the players? In your eyes wash, wash the hands of this season or do you still believe that they believe in some kind of objective or there's some, there's something to be won out this season still
0: yeah in terms of league play I you know I'm, I've mentioned on here I'm a very optimistic fan of all my teams especially Roma you know sure for much. better or for worse uh, <laughs> you need to be a little optimistic when you follow a team like Roma who's broken your heart so many times and they kind of and, beat,
1: beat and, the optimism the, out of you. And the Islanders. Yeah. And the
0: Islanders. They're they're actually, yeah. you know, making me believe these past couple of seasons, yeah. but Roma, yeah. um, it's tough. And I actually, you know, I do my match day reviews at the end of each match day where I follow the big teams, you know, how did their results affect Roma? And usually I go blow by blow, match by match, and how that team now compares to Roma. And I couldn't even do that this week because Roma's now, you know, dropped points in five of their last seven matches. Um, they've only picked up eight points since. Eight, uh, what was it february 14th after the win against Udinese, that three nothing win that was a very convincing win um which was you know they'd also beaten hellas fairly convincingly early on in february late january it looked like roma was you know on a good track um they were in third place a 49 chance of making the champions league according to 538 those projections i use well you know fast forward now those seven matches and roma has only picked up eight points in that time whereas the other teams around them in the table, Atalanta's has picked up 18 points, Napoli 16, Juve 14, Lazio 12, Milan 11. So, you know, uh, and that I'd even bother looking at Inter because Inter is so far ahead of them at this point. But, you know, when you see what those teams have done and outside of Atalanta and I guess you could say Napoli with 16 out of 21 is a pretty good haul. The other teams have not been lighting the world on fire. Juve hasn't mm-hmm. been great. Neither has Lazio or Milan. Uh, so Roma really only have themselves to blame right now for sitting in seventh place. Um, you know, it's very frustrating because many winnable matches that points were dropped, you know, besides losing the direct head to heads to Milan and Napoli in that time, they lost to Parma. Uh, they've drawn uh, injury depleted Sassuolo side. They drew uh, Benevento zero, zero which really was the beginning of the end because the Napoli loss, uh, not Napoli rather Milan loss was one thing. I thought the Benevento draw was very telling uh, it kind of set mm. this set this downward yeah. spiral going.
1: But given that you've you you just said that all the other teams around us aren't setting the world on fire. So is is that is that is that not a sign that it's the season's weighing down on Roma as well as everyone else or, or is it is it Roma specific and that there's there's just a lack of belief in this club?
0: Um I, I think it's a little bit of both with Roma because um the the results have been poor I mean Napoli was playing in the Europa League Atalanta was playing in the Champions League until recently so um I think those clubs you know even Lazio was playing in in the Champions League which is probably yeah. why you know they've been a little bit struggling as well yeah.
1: but With an un, unflattering result against Bayern Munich too. yeah
0: very unflattering yeah. and you know yeah. when um the, the day started with that Milan draw was the first match of the day, I believe. And then you see Juve later in the day draw and you're like, man, Roma could have picked up points on both those teams. But it's been like that for a while now, especially with Milan. Milan's been very unimpressive and Roma has done nothing to make up ground on them, yeah. uh, including that head-to-head. And now yeah. the probability is 5% to make the top
1: four. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll be honest. My my motivation for missing the Sassuolo match was double. I mean, first of all, there was the I didn't have a personal reason um, in my in my social life that I had to deal with, but uh, it was also much by the fact that I'd been reading the the player interviews and like little tidbits they came out with on Instagram in the in the week leading up to the Sassuolo game, and I don't know specifically what it was that I read or saw or listened to or heard, but just a. Uh, a sixth sense as a Roma fan, a long time Roma fan kicked in where I just I thought, you know what? These players are just giving lip service and and they don't really believe. And I just had a I just had a feeling before the game that that swallow result was not gonna be great either way. And then sure enough, final final whistle comes. And okay, yeah, the, the manner of it was um suggests that Roma Roma tried to do the job and got held back at the last minute. But uh, I wasn't surprised by them dropping points because it, it just, the the noise that's coming out of the club right now sound like the club that is uh, of players that are just waiting for time to pass until the, the coach is gone. <laughs> so, uh, or, or some kind of change comes. And uh, I was actually talking about it with, um, I mean, there's a foreign member called Kublowski on uh, KZ Zotti today. And uh, he asked a very good question about like, you know, how, how do you, how do you, how do you make players believe in long-term objectives at a club um, You know, for at least 12 months, You know, not six months at a time? And I said, that's a good question. I have no idea. And this is probably why people have never trusted me to run a football club, which is a good <laughs> thing, because I, I really don't know. Um, but I think, in theory, you have to put in uh, sporting games at a club where players uh, have an incentive to believe for at least 12 months at a time. Um, and also, you have to put in incentives for players to actually stay loyal to the unity of the dressing room over the incentives mm-hmm. that, that that we know they have uh, uh, by keeping an open line to the press in, in a city like Rome you know if, if you're just a player who's at a club like Roma and you see it as a club where you, you can earn a, a, a nice paying contract and then your contract negotiation comes up in a few years and you need to be able to play the press um, or you need to be able to use your clout against the coach to make sure that you're standing at the club is' still good enough to earn a, an extension then, of course, your, your phone is, you, you'd be crazy to, to turn a journalist down by saying, you know what, I'm not going to do you a favor now. And this goes back to patrimony. You know, if I'm scratching back now, you know, you're going to scratch my back later. Um, the only way that you can actually sub- supersede those kind of like selfish intentions that, that are natural for any player to have in, in the prime of their career is if you offer them a club that is serious about sporting goals on the pitch. Mm-hmm. And that means uh, being serious about competing for trophies um that's that's the best idea i can come up with in theory but if you're a club owner like dan Freakin, i'm sure it's much easier said than done
0: yeah it's, it's tough too especially because of the way um european football leagues are structured where you have to finish first to win the league versus american sports that have a playoff system you know yeah. in an american yeah. sport you have to be one of the you know i'll just use an example in the eastern conference in hockey you have to be one of the you know uh i guess actually eight best teams out of like 15 you know to get into yeah. the playoffs, whereas in in a 20-team football league if you're not in the top four you don't even get champions league and if you're not first you don't win the title yeah. uh and then at the bottom yeah. you're just fighting for survival because you know you, you're going to go down to, to set a b which is even, yeah. maybe even more motivating than finishing
1: in a champions league spot in some ways and if, if you're not in the Champions league then you know that your team's going to get dismantled by yeah, next summer. Your, yeah. Your completely gonna... different than a salary yeah. cap
0: structured league so i'm sure there yeah. is um, something to that too to keep players motivated it's, it's definitely got to be different uh over there and then if you're a mid-table club you just kind of get on cruise control to to go to your summer <laughs> vacation in sardinia or something
1: yeah. or, or you're rodrigo de paul and you're asked to work do the work of 10 men yeah and, uh, and, and still not given that that rewarded move to like yeah and Robert.
0: somehow yeah. he's still there god i mean yeah freak, dan freak and ryan freak, and if you're listening call rodrigo de paul's agent please yeah. i mean nobody do else him got him favor. Him for, yeah
1: yeah <laughs> So,
0: you we're, know, we, we move on quickly, though, as a, as a club, because Ajax looms on Thursday. Um, yeah. You know, the Europa League is still in play. Uh, you know, now we get to a more European uh, kind of thoroughbred club, I guess you can call it, Ajax. They have that mm-hmm. pedigree. Made pedigree is maybe more the word I was looking yeah. for than thoroughbred. Um, you know, but they're, they have the pedigree. They were in the Champions League semifinals just a couple of years ago. I believe also a Europa League semifinal in recent
1: seasons. Um, so, so this three, is a club. Three, three, I think you said three semifinals in the last four European campaigns. In the last yeah, if
0: they beat Roma, it'll be three in their last four, I believe I read. Um, so impressive record of late. Um, you know, Pretty much mostly the same squad from a couple of years ago. I'd imagine now have a few sales. So you know, Roma will have their work cut out for them starting the first leg in Amsterdam. Uh, according to 538, Roma has a 6% chance of winning the Europa League, which is now slightly better chance than making the top four, which is something that was, you know, yeah. maybe unfathomable a couple couple weeks ago when Roma was yeah. still in the 20, 30, 40% range of finishing top four. Um, this matchup uh, is currently favoring Ajax to advance over the two-legged uh, a tie 64-36, which makes sense based on Ajax, you know, kind of running away with the uh, device. I think they're up by 11 points right now and you know Roma floundering a bit in the league um and this first match in Amsterdam um uh, they're giving Ajax a 54% chance of winning Roma 24% chance and a 22% chance of a draw um you know Sean what what kind of result would be uh, a success for you this week to at least stay in the tie maybe
1: I think given those stats you just said the draw would be would be the the, yeah. the, the aim I mean I, I don't know if you ever set out from this from the first whistle to, to aim for a draw but if you left 90 minutes this week um with a with a draw going back to Italy you'd be happy with that at yeah, least I would
0: goal scoring draw for sure a 0-0 yeah. I wouldn't be that thrilled about because then you get a goal scoring draw at home and you're and mm. you're screwed but you know a 2-2 I would take a 2-2 give yourself a chance in the Olympic you know Roma's been good in uh in Europe this year Ajax again is a different animal I mean Shakhtar of late in the past decade has become kind of a European household name but uh Braga you know smaller club without that pedigree so this will be more of a test uh, a more seasoned team than than Roma's seen in the Europa League so far For um sure. but I think if Roma plays their game they they can play with them I think the whole thing is definitely to survive this first leg especially with Smalling still out I don't know if Mkhitaryan's even be fit enough to make the bench uh it's looking unlikely from what I've seen of late I haven't seen the updates on his injury um I guess the good news is Jordan Vera too probably is back as a starter this one after playing about 30 minutes on uh, Saturday hopefully he's got right. at least 60-70 minutes in his legs I yeah. think personally Fonseca at this point has to kind of go all out in the Europa League and let it be what it is on Sunday against Bologna because I, I think as unlikely as it seemed a couple weeks ago I think the Europa League is the better chance at, at a trophy and then a top four finish um yeah. you know Because I Um, don't, uh, rather than a top four finish, it's a better chance at the Champions League than a top four finish.
1: Maybe even also a top four finish, because if if you can uh, reinstall some kind of belief in your play for getting good Europa League results, then that might translate to Sunday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, if there too only has one start in him this week, I think it's got to be in this match. You know, I think he's got to play. I think, uh, I don't know what the defense is going to look like. Cristante suspended on Sunday, but you know, he's available for this one. So you probably see Ibanez back in the mix with Mancini and uh, Cristante in the back. I would imagine, uh, yeah. pa- Paul Lopez has played pretty well. So I don't think there's any controversy there in goal. And I think the center of the midfield, you probably have to go with, uh there too. And VR, I think, um, Karsdorp Spinazzola in the wings. And I think Pellegrini probably gets pushed into the attack. Um, most likely with Pedro, I guess, if Mkhitaryan is not fit, because El Shirari is also out now. Um, and then do you yeah. go with, you know, the guy who's been scoring all the goals in the Europa League, Mayrold, or you go to Dzeko, who's got the, you know, the track record a little bit more because Mayrold's been poor of late. That, that's, I think, the biggest question mark is probably there. And, you know, what does he do in the, you know, the center of the midfield, I think, uh, personnel-wise,
1: yeah. probably. I, I would still go with Mayrold. I know, I know you probably wouldn't, but I, I would.
0: Yeah, and I think it depends how they want to play. Because if you're going to absorb pressure from Ajax like you did against Sassuolo, I think if you're going to be springing quick counterattacks, Mayoral is probably the better fit to play a little quicker on the counter than Jecko at this point.
1: I, I just think front and, and for what I've heard from the Sassuolo match because I haven't seen it, but uh, most people, well, most people who who talk about pressing have said that the uh, the front line just doesn't press in unison with the rest of the team, and that creates a pandemonium behind them mm-hmm. because um, the midfield is wondering like, why the hell are we? Two men that are constantly outnumbered, so I would play Menelau just for that alone. Because I mean, no disrespect to Jacob, but Menelau is just a better presser. So yeah,
0: yeah. yeah and Roma needs to start putting more pressure on teams from uh yeah. from the, that pressing perspective.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I, I guess we'll give our our scoreline predictions. I'm going to go, I guess, with what would be somewhat considered optimistic at this point in the season. Go two-two draw to give themselves a chance next Thursday. I'm going to be hopeful and say we at least leave with a goal scoring draw.
1: Yeah, I, I want to be an Ultimus too. I was actually going to go with 1-1, one, one, but then I was thinking it's unlikely to be a low-scoring game with this, with this Roma team. So I'm going to go with 2-2 two, two as well.
0: Yeah. And just uh, a little fun fact to throw out, you guys before we get to our listener questions. Ajax, in their last 10 European home matches against Italian composi- uh, opposition, is winless since beating Roma back in December of 2002. They have uh, six draws and four losses. Uh, and <laughs> lost earlier this season against Adelante. So hopefully Roma can make it 11 straight and uh, the, still be the last team to lose to Ajax, but make it, you know, eight, 19 years ago rather than, you know, this week.
1: Yeah, and th- another fun fact is their star striker and most expensive signing in, in the Dutch league history is not eligible for this match purely because they left them out by accident in the in the squad list in January. So, yeah, no, yeah. no Sebastian Haller.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a matchup of two teams with... Uh, <laughs> Issues listing, uh, listing players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll move on to a. We had a couple of listener questions today from Twitter. So Sean, I'll throw them at you. We had from AS Roma 27. Uh, I'd like to hear your comments on his interview, meaning Pelota, which we, we talked a lot about. But what would you ask if you were to interview Jimmy?
1: Uh, very specifically, I would ask, and I, I've been wondering about this all week why has no one asked Jim Pelota about his handling of Medi Benetia when mm. he was uh, sold to Bayern Munich? Uh, because that, that is one issue where I was very much on Pelota's side at the time, being someone who's like getting reacquainted with Serie A because there was no live coverage in my in my country for the years previous. Um, so I was getting back back familiar with Roma and I was, I was like, yeah, this Pelota guy, you know, he, he knows how to, you know, slam the hammer down. But since then we've seen Benatia is actually very tied to Roma, very uh, close to the club, you know, comes back often, talks very highly about the club and, and really has it in his heart. Uh, doesn't seem at all like the the character that Pelotta painted. So, you know what? Yeah, you know, that that would be a nice contradiction to to ask Pilotta about. Um, you know, he he very much seems like the kind of guy who needs feels the need to character assassinate people when he's done with them. Um, so, I'd ask him about Benattia, mm. and I'd, I'd also ask him about the issues that we touched upon in, in just earlier. You know, there were some contradictions there that, that I, I would ask him about, like with the the Monty thing, the Malcolm transfer. I'd ask him about that, and and did he have a say? On transfers by the summer of 2018 or not you know set the record straight on that and i'd ask him uh, about um the contradictions he came up with talking about you know sabatini as the as having a feel for players but then monchi apparently didn't listen to the club's recommendation recommendation based on data you know yeah which, which 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 way is it that's those are the three questions i'd ask him
0: yeah i think those are good ones i i guess if you know could throw a couple at him I would wonder what his biggest regret is and outside of Monchi, I guess, because you know the easy answer for him is probably Monchi, but you know, what kind of does he have any regrets and maybe any advice that he would offer the freethians to try to avoid the same mistakes he's made um, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, um, but then we had another one from Colin Galagli uh, one. Uh, he said it might be a bit late, but do you think Fonseca has to keep going with the current tactics or try to move to a different formation style of press switch literally anything to try and get the team to play better so what do you think sean about the tactics
1: it's a good question um but i mean me and steve were honest last week when or last episode when a similar question like this came up we we didn't really know what changes you could actually make to this side right now uh some people have commented that you know you could use cristante more as a midfielder full-time but other than that what uh, what other options does he really have yeah Um, it's tough yeah, so I I would I wouldn't move to a different formation just for the sake of it. Um, I wouldn't try to like try a placebo if that's what you're saying to get the team to play better. Um, I know I know it looks like it makes a coach look stubborn when he's like just sticking with the long term plan and not really like reacting on a short term basis. But I would I would stick with the long term plan given the lack of options uh, that Fonteke has in the short term.
0: Yeah, especially with what's going on with the injuries in the center of defense. I, I think Cristante has to stay in the back three right now, at least until Smalling is fully fit. Um, and like you had mentioned, you know, you, you train with the long-term goal in mind. And, you know, Cristante's yeah. long-term training at this point has been at the center back position for the most part, you'd imagine. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, if you do switch to a back four, w- what kind of effectiveness do you lose from Karsdorp and Spinazzola? Um, mm. Because they're so effective playing the wing. So there's a lot to consider there. I can yeah. see why uh, people like Colin would be asking about a switch in formation that usually seems to be the first thing people turn to. But I, I, I agree with you. I don't know where he would go, Fonseca, uh, uh, in terms of switching uh, tactics or formation. Right now, maybe some tactics within the formation, but uh, maybe pressing a little more things like that, like we had mentioned. But I don't know about uh, you know actually switching yeah. to a four-man back line or anything.
1: I think, I think tactics or strategy goes like. Transcends formation. Mm -hmm. Um, I know people want to see formation because it's like you see a different shape on the pitch and you feel like something, or you see a different shape from kickoff and you feel like, okay, great, something's changing. But really, your formation will revert to your player's strengths no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you'll see, like in 90 minutes, that Rumble will end up playing around Spinazola no matter what the formation because Spinazola is a guy who embraces that responsibility of carrying the ball. So um, I think more than change of formation, you could criticize. Fonseca, if, if you were it's predisposed to criticize him, criticize him for not changing the strategy, um, like Steven said, just like just about the Sassuolo game, it was disappointing. If this is by design, it was disappointing to see uh, Roma go into a match yet again with the, the strategy being to invite Sassuolo onto them rather than taking the game to Sassuolo. So you criticize Fonseca for maybe telling us players, look, we're going to give away the ball and we're going to counter. Yeah, you know, sometimes if that just doesn't work, then maybe you should just go after the game, and yeah. that's what I would probably change.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think the thing that has to be mentioned too is the injuries. You know, the injuries go right down the spine of Roma. Smalling, Vertu, Mikatarian go right down the middle yeah. uh, of the pitch, pretty much in this formation, and and then you have on top of that strikers who are not scoring. So uh, some of the, the 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 blame I think has to fall on the injuries and the players not performing as well. Mm. Um, and then we had another listener question from Adikari. Uh He asked, with Under and Clovert looking like they're coming back, do you think a 4-3-3 with Sadi would work, or should Roma just offload them and stick to a
1: 3-4-2-1? I'd love to see Under coming back. I might, I might be alone in that, but I'd love to see him coming back. But the, the, the dilemma here is that if Sadi is the next coach, I think Zaniolo, who I really, really fancy as a, as a long-term prospect, as striker of Roma, I don't think him. I don't see him pro, uh, prospering as a as a striker under Sarri if they go with false nine, because Zaniolo is not a false nine. He's, he he yeah. struggles. Like he's he can hold up the ball, but that's that's not necessarily hold up play. Hold up play is when you see the passes that you can make out to the overlapping wingers, and Zaniolo struggles with that. Um, so I see Zaniolo more. I fancy him more as an out and out striker, and I don't think I don't know if that would happen under Sarri. Um So that that being said, I think Zaniolo is. The first choice at right wing, as he's always been under mm-hmm. Sarri. and then so that that makes it difficult to really justify bringing Jignas under back, because is he really going to beat out Zaniolo for competition there? But it's a, it's a nice problem to have. Um, it's ironic that Justin Kluivert would would have more of a chance to make a, a statement than under possibly because he has less competition on the left side. But I mean that it's a great problem to have when you know because like, Sarri at Napoli had. In as his technical player on the left side, and then he switched play to Callejon, who was the great ghost runner making runs off the ball on the right side. Um, at Roma with Sadi, if he went to 4 3 3 you'd have Cliver as like the battler ball carrier on the left side, and Linda with the powerful shot on the right, and Zaniola with the powerful shot on the right. Zaniola can also be the ball carrier on the right. Uh, so it's, you know, these just, you could attack opponents from from both flanks, and really like you'd have so many options. But it's just yeah, it's just whether it's whether it's wise to try and split playing time between Under and Zaniola, because they both need to kick on now. You know, they both need to have a club that really like gives them that playing time to to, to hit the next level.
0: Yeah, um, and, and I'm just thinking about Sadi and those wingers if they were to come back, man. That they do kind of remind me of those Napoli wingers, the the smaller, diminutive type wingers who can mm. move with the ball and could could be a, a fun team to watch um makes you wonder too where they would go in the striker position like you said um if you bring in Asadi, who likes to play the false nine do you invest heavily in a in a vlahovic balotti type striker it's, it it begs another question um and our last user question was from andy james and he asked will we discuss how ugly the new balance kits are the away kit is okay but i don't like the other two at all um did they did they officially release the the new kits yet or are these just the uh, kind of um I don't know what when, when, when I
1: saw this, when I saw this question about two hours ago I I, I told myself to check out the new kits to see what he's talking about but I forgot um, I haven't I haven't seen them I don't know yeah I,
0: I didn't see an official club announcement I think he's referring to some of those the uh, they pop up those on Twitter put, on some of those headlines yeah those .net. pretty headline type of sites yeah. um, personally I've always been a fan of the Nike kits uh, I saw why Palota wanted to move away from Nike there apparently there were some issues with the marketing and branding where they were told they were going to be treated like barcelona it was far from it um but i think the nike kits are going to be hard to compete with in terms of aesthetics from new balance from what i've seen from some of the new balance stuff um you know i i got the the new home jersey recently my wife got me for, for my birthday and they're they're nice kits um hmm. so i hope new balance does something a little bit more than we've seen from some of their their other stuff that they we've seen at like porto and uh other places okay
1: I see what he's saying now because I just googled it through sort of the headlines. Uh, the away kit is god awful ugly, um, but so ugly that it could actually be beautiful. That I remember there's a, <laughs> there was a description said about something last week that that really nails it for me. I can't remember what they were talking about. They weren't talking about kits, but they were saying this thing is so this thing has swung so far wide to the ugly spectrum that it actually swung back to being beautiful, <laughs> and this is what this away white New Balance Roma perspective kit looks like uh, whether it's official or not I don't know um I could get used to it uh over the course of the season the, the home kit looks all right I haven't I don't, haven't seen the third kit so I don't know uh, but if, if you're if you're saying it's ugly I agree with you but I could get used to it
0: yeah and I'll hold on my final judgment until I see the actual you know um <laughs> club club announcements but I, I I hope they're not so
1: hideous um, you know, all, all I can say is uh, there's a special place in health for people who come up with ugly Roma kits because you really have to work hard to scrub yeah. these colors.
0: If, if they're going to try to get too crazy, just keep it simple. You know, just yeah. honor, honor the colors and the badge, and and don't don't kill the don't kill when, it.
1: When when you come up with simple Roma kits, you're guaranteed to rank top five in most beautiful kits for for the season. So just keep it simple.
0: Like Although so. I can tell you, if they end up being ugly and I don't want to purchase any next year, my wife would be a happy camper. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, and that was our last listener question so we'll wrap here we've had you guys for a while thank you for you know coming back after we had our long two-week uh, break for the international window but um, you know we have our regular coverage coming up this week with the Ajax match on Thursday Bologna on Sunday so look out for the probable formations previews uh, Sean's Totti today piece coming up later this week um, yep. and everything else involved any any other big announcements obviously like the pull interview will be covered as well Um, I just just want to
1: say if it it comes across like I have a problem with James Pelotta, not really I I want to say thank you to him for putting Franco Baldini in a good light because I was one of the few people that never had a problem with Baldini at the club I always felt like, I mean, he's the last sporting director to actually win a title with Roma Um, he's he's a guy who stood up to to Moji in in the dark periods of Cacciopoli uh, one of the few people who did so I'm thankful that Baldini came out of this looking more like less like there's like the devil that he for some reason was was looked at when he left Rome
0: yeah yeah definitely an insightful interview and I think Palota has to be appreciated for some of the positives he brought uh the social media presence the marketing presence kind of brought Roma more into the 21st century so even with some of his failings there were some successes I think that do have to be applauded uh you know everything has to be taken into perspective I think So, you know, we'll be back with you guys soon. Um, So, you know, keep up with the site, uh, you know, get your listener questions in the next time if you want to get a question out to us and we'll be happy to answer. So we'll talk to you guys soon.